a few times over the last few years um, in talking about imaginal practice and introducing it and um, sensing with soul. I quoted a an alchemical maxim or guideline uh, from sometime in the Middle Ages, I think, um, which says something like, to paraphrase, something like, um, don't proceed with any operation, with any alchemical operation, until all has become water, until all has become liquid. So don't proceed until all has become liquid, until all is liquid. And we've sort of uh, co-opted that maxim and that phrase and interpreted it a certain way in line with this teaching around the kind of loosening uh, uh, that or liquefying that happens when there's less fabrication. Uh, and the necessity of that, the place of that in sensing the soul and in imaginal practice. Um, so this is what I want to go into, just say a few things tonight about that. Um, this aspect, it's also uh, one of the elements, one of the nodes, uh, slightly less fabricated. Uh, slightly less fabrication. So this loosening or liquefying or degree of unfabricating uh, of the perception, self, other world, etc., the elements of our the aspects of our existence and our being. So notice that the maxim doesn't say uh, don't proceed until everything has disappeared. Uh, things are liquefied, uh, but not completely faded. So we're not, uh, it's not possible to actually practice, imaginal uh, practice in the depths of fading, in, 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 in the proximity of the unfabricated. That whole meditative journey and exploration uh, into the, the the kind of deep end of fading, uh, towards the unfabricated, opening to the unfabricated, uh, I think that's absolutely lovely and, and priceless thing for a human being. Something uh, amazing, if anything deserves to be called amazing, uh, and... Uh, potentially liberating. Um, it should be liberating if one approaches it the right way and understands it and contextualizes it the right way. And sometimes it's liberating for people even if they don't uh, fully understand it or have not arrived at it with a proper context. Uh, so beautiful, lovely, amazing, uh, potentially utterly transformative and liberating that uh, depth of, of uh, fading, really when all perception uh, disappears, uh, self, others, world, subject, object, time, present moment, space, the whole, the whole show uh, fades uh, through less clinging, through uh, the withdrawal of clinging.
And uh, that whole experience and the beauty of that, uh, I think, is really important. When we come to practicing with sensing with soul, though, as I said, we can't in 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 that those depths of fading and, and fabricating, there is no sensing. Uh, certainly not in any any usual sense. Um, uh, meaning, so sensing with soul n- needs uh, this kind of wide middle ground, middle territory, middle region uh, of selves, objects, things, materials, world, etc. Appearing, they uh, they still retain form. Form is part of the perception of this or that, or this or that imaginal object, or that sensed with soul, etc. Um, so some form is there. It's not going a, 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 a dissolution of form through this fading. It's not going there. There's a range where form is retained, but there's a kind of looseness and. Uh, to, to that form, a less rarefication. So the sensing the soul, the territory, a wide territory uh, for sensing the soul practice, um, it operates in this, where there's, there's uh, form, but it's loose and somewhat less fabricated. It's liquefied. It's malleable, rather than rigid and rarefied and entrenched uh, and solidified in that sense. Um, so there's, there's a kind of um, dance as well between uh, around rarefying and not and non-rarefying. But really, uh, probably more important for now is this is this region of form but liquid form, form but malleable form, form but unrarefied form. So that um, we've been talking about emotions and a little bit about self. Uh, view and self-sense, and we'll come back to self-sense as, as the talks go on, hopefully. Um, in uh, they, in order for, for powerful soul-making to happen with respect to emotion, with respect to image, with respect to dukkha, with respect to um, a self-sense, with respect to eros, and the sense of eros, it, it needs to retain uh, some form of emotion, image, self, eros, dukkha, whatever it is. Uh, we're not completely dissolving those. And in that retaining of, of the form, but liquid, malleable, unrarefied form, that's the, the, uh, uh, the region, uh, the region of like quicksilver in alchemy, like mercury, like it's, it's, uh, it's liquefied, it can take on different shapes, or like molten gold, whatever. So this is what we're really interested in. Um, and tonight I want to talk about the place of that unfabricating uh, and loosening and liquefying and also the, underst- the, the practices of emptiness with regard to that. If we talk about um, practicing uh, with emptiness or emptiness practices and and understanding emptiness, fathoming uh, what that really means and the fullness and the radicality and the comprehensiveness uh, and depths of what that means, um, I think I think it's a journey. Uh, it's something very profound, subtle, complex. Um, really 
at the edge of what conception uh, can articulate and then going beyond that edge. And that journey of exploration in, in practice and understanding, um, to me, takes time. Like any journey, it takes time. So it's, um, generally speaking, I mean, maybe there are some people that just kind of get the whole thing in one go. I've never met anyone like that. I've met people who think uh, they they have, um, but when I hear them speak or I read what they've written about emptiness, it seems to me to be missing um, either some depth or some comprehensiveness or both. So for me, it's something... Uh, I'm saying this as a reminder to those of you who are interested in, in that journey into the depths of emptiness and the fullness and the radicality of what that means. It's, it's really a journey and it takes time and takes uh, work and play and willingness to experiment and all that. And that's interesting. The, uh, again, we're back to individuals and the, and the var- variance between uh, individuals uh, with regard to so many different facets of what we're laying out and, and explaining. That, um, and with regard to emptiness too. Um, because some people um, don't seem uh, to have a need for any deep emptiness practice. Um, they can uh, work well with images. They have a sense of the imaginal middle way, of the theatre-like quality of them being neither real nor not real, etc., um, and for sensing the soul and imaginal practice, they don't seem to need emptiness. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I would definitely acknowledge that possibility. Not everyone uh, needs emptiness. I think I haven't kind of put the full stop on that conclusion yet, but I, I think I think that may be a possibility. Uh, I haven't put the conclusion for myself uh, on that possibility. So some people, either because they just have a, a kind of artistic temperament or because they're, um, uh, they've read a lot of kind of modern philosophy, etc., uh, about ontology and epistemology and um, uh, cultural contingency and all kinds of things. Um, and that philosophy has not just been a kind of bookish, uh, superficial mouthing of, of whatever's uh, trendy at the moment in academic circles, etc. But it's actually gone deep, it's permeated, or as I said, they have this kind of artistic, poetic sensibility that's accessible to them, that's part of the way they see things anyway, or for whatever other reason. Other people um, do, I think, need uh, emptiness practice as part of what um, I want to say grounds uh, sensing the soul and imaginal practice. Um, without it, uh, there is too much tendency for reification. Um, to, it, it takes it out of the realm of what we would call imaginal practice. So it kind of grounds it or uh, keeps one on, on, on a path uh, or, wide as it is that path, um, in some respects, the emptiness practices help uh, because th- there's a middle way there in terms of real and not real uh, that comes from emptiness understanding and imbues one's sense of everything 
as one goes deeper, one's perceptions, one's sense of life, one's sense of the world, etc. So some people, I would say, do need it. Uh, some people, you know, approach emptiness, and there's a kind of should there, or oh, I really should, you know... Rob and all these other Buddhist teachers go on about emptiness and uh, how central it is and how important it is, and but there's no real uh, there's no real eros for emptiness. There's no re- and certain um, or maybe not for the unfabricated, not really for the teachings of emptiness so much. Um, and so the whole impetus to uh, explore emptiness practice really coming from a should. Um, Generally speaking, I, uh, my observation is that when practice, when any practice or any aspect of practice or strand of practice comes from the motivation of some kind of should, because a person thinks they should, um, then there isn't the eros there, there isn't the juice, there isn't the libido and the lubrication and the aliveness and the fire, um, and uh, it, it tends not to be very um, fruitful. That that kind uh, the, the the practice explorations that are um, uh, driven by 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 some sense of should that's been imported from somewhere or other. So if that's the case, somehow at some point, and it might be later on in one's practice or uh, or whatever, if if one needs emptiness, somehow uh, that should needs needs to be converted to a real uh, curiosity and aliveness. Um, of desire to explore, to understand, to play. And of course some people have uh, a real eros, uh, a real um, something lights up in their soul when they hear about emptiness or when they hear about the unfabricated or the little taste that they have or wherever they are on that journey. Uh, I alluded to this whole journey of certainly of unfabricated, but even more of the journey into understanding emptiness, uh, which is a bigger journey than just unfabricating. Um, wherever they are in that process, they they love it, they enjoy it. And there's just a desire, an eros, to, to want more. So that's a kind of ideal relationship with emptiness. Exploration. Some people, it's... it's uh, uh, it seems to me, um, over the last years, uh, especially when I've been teaching imaginal practice and contextualizing it uh, with uh, emptiness teachings, or letting the emptiness teachings inform uh, and form a basis for um, for the whole soul-making paradigm, um, it seems to me that some people uh, take the emptiness on faith um, in other words, they don't have uh, a deep personal realization uh, of of emptiness through practice, through meditation. They don't fully understand it, but they understand a little bit. They understand, for instance, that there's no um, ultimate reality, and therefore there's just ways of looking, and that legitimizes the flexibility um, of ways of looking. And in a way, it seems they're taking that on faith, uh, that much understanding. Uh, they're taking it on faith from me or from another teacher, um, Catherine or whoever. And um, But it's enough. Or it's enough for a certain uh, range and depth 
um, and fertility of exploration of the imaginal. So that's quite interesting to me as well. Um, the you know the full the full shebang with emptiness and the unfabricated and all that and out the other side of the unfabricated. It's really quite rare. Um, I'd say unfortunately, but whatever, it's just how, how things are um, for different reasons um, at this time. Um, but wherever one is, and this is one of the points I want to say, whatever one is, it can be really fruitful. Wherever one is in one's understanding or practice of emptiness, that's really one of the main points I want to make tonight. And it's interesting that some sometimes a person hasn't, uh, as I said, got that personal uh, meditative based, experientially based conviction, uh, understanding, realization of emptiness. But they've taken something, some understanding on board um, through faith in a teacher or a teaching, or just a resonance with a teacher, just, just like, I know that's right. Um, and I think back to myself year, years ago, and I think I mentioned this in some talk or other, I, I had this intuitive um, trust in emptiness teachings, which I didn't understand, it had limited uh, sense of experientially, etc. But something in me kind of banked on it, and uh, and then later explored uh, practices and understandings more more deeply to to, to kind of uh, fill out and add to that kind of intuitive faith in it. But this is this to me is interesting that there can be something. Um, an understanding absorbed on faith, and that forms um, some degree of a, a, a basis, a platform uh, to engage uh, soul-making practices. Um, I will mention one thing here, just about uh, the strand of emptiness practices per se. It's, it's not exactly what I want to talk about, but I'll say it anyway, because because part of uh, that journey, at least the way I would outline it, certainly, I think there's no way around this if, if you're wanting uh, to experience and understand deep emptiness. Um, the movement, as I said, towards um, the unfabricated, the, the movement of unfabricating at different degrees and uh, ranges and depths, movement towards more fading and a person engaged in that kind of in that direction of exploration and, and all the subtlety and, and beauty and rigor and uh, enchantment of, of such a such a journey and that, that thread there of unfabricating um, it's almost uh, everyone in fact I, I, I don't know that I've encountered any anyone who's taken that journey who doesn't um, at some point get uh, tight or pushy uh, trying to achieve more fading so there's a certain degree of fading of perception of body sense self sense world sense this or that Vedana whatever it is all of that um, uh, and one feels like oh this is going great now I've seen this much fading before, let's just push for some more. And so it becomes a kind of um, uh, task to achieve more fading. And and one can get uh, quite tight uh, 
around that, and one can actually feel that tightness and that pushiness in the practice. So this is very, very common, this, this trying to achieve more fading, and uh, more fading than whenever, however much one has, um, and then, unless it's a totally un- unfabricated experience, and then, and then um, getting tight around that, stressed around that. So a couple of possibilities here, just to put them out. One is um, that the one can check one's intention. Very, very, notice that that's happening right, right in in the thick of practice, in in the in the subtle, uh, subtle, uh, delicate surgery of of that of that movement, and uh, recognize it's going on. And actually, just uh, two things, two possibilities. Um, one is just slightly shift the intention, um, not so much to achieve this or that amount of fading, but the intention is a curiosity around dependent arising. I'm really interested in, I'm really curious about um, why there is this kind of appearance now, or this degree of fading, or this degree of um, solidity, substantiality, now, what is it dependent on? Clinging. What does that mean? Clinging in, in, in uh, the way I use the term is a very big word. It's a very, it involves a lot at lots of different levels. But shifting the intention to curiosity about dependent arising takes some of the pressure of trying to achieve more fading. They're obviously connected as intentions, but uh, an intention of curiosity is a lot, a lot less pushy and it's, it's less um, kind of got the driven goal of, of achieving more fading. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is is actually to remember that insight, in, in the way that I commonly use the word, insight actually is what brings letting go. Um, and in bringing letting go, uh, so where there's insight, where there's an insight way of looking, where I'm looking at something with insight, sensing something with insight, with a, with a degree of insight understanding, then it brings letting go. It should bring letting go. Often it will bring letting go right there and then as I'm sensing this thing with that insight way of looking. And because there's letting go, there's ease now. So that, again, the motivation, for example, for doing a practice like um, a welcoming practice or um, relaxing clinging or anatta or regarding um, objects of perception as empty or whatever, um, the second intention, apart from curiosity, can be actually ease. It should bring ease now, and so I'm practicing this with with a intention um, for ease. So again, that shifts the intention out of the tightness or crampness of of clinging to the possibility of achieving more fading. So in that second one, even then, that, so then even the the striving to achieve more fading is let go of um, as it's perceived as a disease. It's a kind of clinging, right? Another point in relation to this uh, journey into the depths of um, unfabricating is uh, is not to worry if not everything fades. 
Um, so yes, there's that possibility that all perception, every every element of perception, um, uh, disappears, fades, gets unfabricated, is not fabricated at that time. Um, but in a way, you know, it's okay if, um, and it's quite common for, uh, say, you know, most of the body is gone, but uh, everything's gone except my teeth or whatever. Um, um, and then what what can happen in that? We say, oh, that's not faded yet. And then and then one's actually uh, one gets pulled to focus on trying to get that thing, my teeth or. Uh, whatever it is, sounds or you know, certain a certain um, realm of sense perception or a certain object uh, doesn't fade. One gets pulled into into an intention of focus on trying to get that to fade, and that actually becomes a kind of obsession. Uh, again, it's a clinging and aversion, and clinging and aversion, if we understand dependent arising deeply, are exactly what will um, fabricate that. Op- uh, an object. So if I'm if I'm aversive to this object, essentially because I want it to fade, because I want complete fading, I want to get rid of that remaining thing. Um, it's a kind of aversion, and and that uh, keeps keeps fabricating the object. So it actually won't fade. Some partial fading, some only partial fading, can often be enough. Um, for a practitioner to intuit the universal truth of of the insight uh, regarding clinging and dependent arising and fabrication. In other words, yes, not everything fades, or that sense, the element that the the experiences in that sense door, or this object, or whatever it is, doesn't fade. But there's enough moving up and down of this spectrum of fabrication and experience, and understanding the relationship with clinging clinging again in the broader sense, that at some point, up and down, up and down, and see it let go, let go, let go, everything fades more and more, even if it doesn't completely fade into a total experience of the unfabricated. Um, at some point, the sort of intuitive wisdom uh, grasps something, it gets something, and it gets the truth of that insight uh, regarding clinging and depenerizing. Conversely, some people actually have a total experience of the unfabricated, um, as I as I mentioned earlier, but they're not understanding it at all in terms of clinging, independent arising, and they may not get any liberating, uh, or they may certainly not get the the the, the full possibility of, of liberating insight there. So we still. Um, What's more important is the insight and the understanding. That can be um, uh, understood by by the intuitive wisdom faculty, or whatever we might say, even when there isn't complete fading. So I put that out just for those of you who are perhaps in parallel exploring this movement into unfabricating um, as part of the um, larger weave of soul-making dharma practices, um, or who are kind of taking uh, maybe time out from the soul-making to go into emptiness more, or whatever, whoever whoever that's relevant for. And what do we mean when we uh, say emptiness? Uh, 
I may come, I hope to come back to this in, in another talk, but um, people mean, if you've been around the Dharma um, a while and you're listening carefully and reading carefully, you'll see that there's a lot of different um, interpretations of what that means. So I hope to come back to that and the implications of that, um, the variety and those choices of interpretation. Um, but what do we mean uh, when we use that term? Uh, well, we could say, um, in answer to the question, what is the basic reality? We could say, well, emptiness is the basic reality. And then a follow-up question, what is emptiness? Emptiness is no basic reality. What is emptiness? Emptiness is no basic reality. Emptiness is the reality of no basic reality. So in a sort of uh, Zen-like nutshell, that is what we mean when we use the word emptiness. Or that's the the main uh, way we are using the word. Emptiness, what is emptiness? It means there's no basic reality. Emptiness is the basic reality. And that basic reality is that there is no basic reality. Wrapped up in the way uh, we talk about emptiness and all this business are two really central concepts that you've heard uh, me use a lot. Um, Fabrication and ways of looking. So that fabrication we've already touched on, but um, this uh, meditative experimental exploration and curiosity about the fabrication of perception. Not just of the self-sense and the personality sense, but of uh, self at every level, all objects, all phenomena, um, the whole world, time, space, etc. And, as I said, uh, developing the R of certain practices that Um, fabricate less and understanding how the mind fabricates more at times Um, and then in fact uh, understanding also that the mind is fabricated awareness is fabricated so really there is no basic reality there Um, time, space, the whole show so that uh, notion of fabrication is really central to the main way that I would um, teach emptiness and explain emptiness and encourage someone to explore it. Um, uh, There are are other ways too, but um, in a way they all come back to fabrication. And implicit in that is a second idea, as a set of ways of looking, which means that we can, a consciousness is always, uh, when it's perceiving anything, it's always engaged in some kind of way of looking, way of sensing, way of relating to those terms, mean, mean I just use ways of looking as an umbrella term for all that, way of sensing, way of relating, uh, to whatever it's perceiving. And the through playing with different ways of looking, we discover that some ways of looking are more fabricating than others. They fabricate more dukkha, more self, more solidity, more subject, more object, more time, sense, etc., etc. Um, and so playing with different ways of looking, seeing their effects on fabrication and on dukkha and on all kinds of other things. And 
possibility of taking this all the way, as I said, um, into the depths of unfabricating, opening to unfabricated, um, and then realizing in a way there's nothing but ways of looking. That they're empty too, but we're just left with ways of looking and the possibility of uh, looking, of sensing in this way at times, in that way at times, in this other way. Um, this is going on automatically anyway, and we have certain default habits of looking, of sensing in this way or that way. But through practice, we begin to kind of loosen those uh, the rigidity of uh, the entrenchment of certain pathways of, of ways of looking that tend always to solidify this or that or reify the self or whatever it is, reify, certainly reify time, and uh, etc. Um, and all that gets loosened up and we can begin to explore there's this kind of way, way of looking that loosens things in this way and loosens dukkha and loosens self. There's these kinds of ways of looking that loosen self to a certain extent but uh, allows some skillful fabrication, etc., in the whole range there. So emptiness, fabrication, ways of looking completely um, tied together. That there are only ways of looking, and that no way of looking reveals an ultimate truth um, to how a thing is, uh, is, is an understanding of emptiness. That's what emptiness means. It's only ways of looking, no way of looking is the ultimate truth of this thing or that thing. Now again, in regard to um, the eros that might be involved in, in such an exploration, um, I uh, I think it's important um, that this whole idea of ways of looking, this logos really, of ways of looking, the possibilities of ways of looking, that, that conceptual framework, um, it's important that it that it really comes alive. Um, it it itself the, the the logos the idea of ways of looking as I've just very briefly outlined and much more elsewhere um, that idea of ways of looking needs to become imaginal. Uh, it needs to become poetic, beautiful, powerful. In other words. Um, that uh, create discovery, create discover possibility that's implicit in, in the whole idea of ways of looking, that the way of looking uh, creates um, uh, the, the appearance, shapes, informs, fabricates uh, whatever appearance. Um, the magic of things, the groundlessness, the sense of then the possibility of viewing oneself as an artist of perception, as a magician, as a sorcerer, etc. All this may be woven into kind of, in a way, falling in love with um, the whole idea of ways of looking. Uh, as opposed to, again, it sounding like some kind of abstract, yeah, sure, ways of looking, yeah, you can look at things different ways. Um, um, or, or just some intellectual sort of philosophy. So we end up um, bowing to all that in some way. This whole idea of ways of looking and everything that's involved in it. Uh, 
it becomes imaginal in in the in the sense that it it, it becomes dimensionalized in the self the self other world uh, uh, the idea of ways of looking the self that relates to ways of looking and the world that it opens up and um, all of that becomes um, uh, taken up by the soul making dynamic all the elements the eros psyche logos so the whole relationship or conception to that idea it's not it's not a kind of anti-libidinal or deflationary idea um, uh, it's not oh it doesn't matter or it's just a way of looking or whatever as if as if we don't care there's something um, very beautiful and if one goes deeply enough into it, I think, again, this is important, if one goes deeply enough into it, that uh, the whole idea and practice, when we've absorbed it in the heart of, of ways of looking, that whole um, conceptual framework and, and, and the exploration of it, reveals, opens us to a really profound mystery and sacredness about... Uh, consciousness and the cosmos so at one level it might seem yes we can have a way of looking that sees sacredness or we can have a way of looking at another time that decides not to see sacredness or doesn't see sacredness or whatever and that's true at a certain level but as one goes deeper into this whole um, exploration of ways of looking and that whole logos there in practice uh, it reveals um, the mystery and the sacredness of the indissoluble um, unentwinement of consciousness and cosmos. The poetry of that, the beauty of that. So in that sense, emptiness and ways of looking has everything to do with participation as well, which again is one of the, one of the elements. So there's a relationship there between the whole idea of participation the mystery and depth of that concept, and also the whole teaching of ways of looking. Um, so this is, uh, I think, quite important. So, when uh, when we uh, can fabricate a little less through whatever means. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. When we can uh, let things, allow things to become liquid, when we can liquefy and loosen things, then that allows image to arise. There is the possibility in the loosening and unbinding to some degree of perception of this or that. There is an increased possibility of um, uh, image arising in practice of sensing with soul. Actually, I should throw in one more um, discrimination there, or a related point, slightly different. Um, liquefying things, loosening things with a taste of deep emptiness, um, unfabricating, uh, not only <clears throat> allows the possibility of image opens up the possibility for the birth, the reception of an image. It also may uh, empower, give power and depth 
to an image that is already accessible. <clears throat> so I think on the recent retreat we did uh, Roots into the Ground of Soul, I think I shared at some point, I can't remember the context, um, that uh, sometimes um, before, for instance, um, giving a talk on the imaginal soul-making, uh, especially when it felt like uh, th- th- there was uh, a chance of a difficult audience and hostility, but actually any time, really, um, in the past, and I still do it, um, uh, calling on uh, the imaginal soul-making lineage, the beings historical and angelic, if you like, of the past, of the present, of the future, um, imaginal beings and calling on them for help, for support, uh, recognizing myself as um, wanting to serve that lineage and um, support it and move it on and be part of it and conceiving of myself imaginally as part of that that tradition, that lineage. It's an imaginal tradition, really. Um, <clears throat> so yes, before, before any time, really, Often I talk about soul making, certainly before a difficult talk, um, or when I'm very tired, sometimes from illness. And I think I mentioned our had these podcasts were scheduled, and I was really struggling with health and uh, fatigue, and didn't want to let the side down, so to speak. Didn't want to let this lineage down, this tradition, <coughs> um, for whom I'm a temporary spoke one of the temporary spokespersons perhaps imaginally um, so then <clears throat> imaginally prayerfully aligning myself uh, in 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 the imaginal realm with with that imaginal lineage and uh, de- devoting myself to that um, putting my intention in, in in alignment and devotion to that and calling for help um, what I failed to mention on that roots uh, into the ground of soul, just in the in, in the moment of it, was that what I often do with that is um, have a few moments of really deep emptiness uh, perception beforehand. So I go um, <clears throat> just based on past practice and all the work I've done, um, very deep into some uh, unfabricating of all things. And then coming out of that, dipping into that, coming out of it with that uh, powerful liquefying and unfabricating, then um, engaging in this uh, prayerful, devotional, um, dedicated uh, relationship with the lineage and asking for help. And that, excuse me, that dip into deep emptiness and that deep unfabricating, even just for a few moments, lends that whole imaginal sense of the lineage and myself and what I'm serving and what I want to serve um, gives it much greater power. It's already accessible as an image, it's something I can generate and call on <coughs> and call back, but the, the power and the soul-making power of that is amplified, I think, significantly um, through that dip into emptiness, deep emptiness. Um, so... <coughs> Yes, deep emptiness can empower images that are already there, already accessible, and it can also, the unfabricating, the loosening can <clears throat> support and open the possibility of uh, an image appearing, coming, visiting, uh, being received.
And in regard to that latter possibility, we have to point something else out. As always, uh, there's a mutual dependent origination. So yes, um, dependent on uh, fabricating less and liquefying is uh, the arising of image. But as always, the the dependency uh, runs both ways. Uh, There's a mutual dependent origination, which means that when we sense with soul, when when there's an imaginal perception, there is some degree of loosening. There is some degree of of less fabrication. Um, So, I sometimes give the example of... um, Especially, especially recently, you know, challenged with the health stuff and and the uh, sort of uh, nearness of death uh, and sensing that. Um, sometimes I, I describe going into a mode of sensing my life and death um, from the perspective of of eternity. So, specii eternatus in Latin. Um, it, it, uh, the um, sort of kind of uh, bird's eye view from beyond death or beyond time. And in a way, what that's doing is um, is stimulating or, or igniting the node of uh, the element uh, of eternality, of the 28 elements. Um, seeing my life, my death, my narrative, um, uh, in from that perspective, uh, ignites... It turns on the eternality node, and then um, myself and my life and my death and my my journey in uh, through life to death, from birth to death, uh, becomes image, and um, and in that there's a certain loosening, unbind, unbinding, um, fading of perception to some degree, to some degree, which is exactly what we're talking about. Um, it brings energy, etc., uh, alignment, all that. Um, so, if we go back to the alchemical maxim, do not perform any operation, do not perform any alchemical op- operation, do not um, begin the work until all is liquid. Yes, but we can. it also works the other way around. Um, the, the arising of an image to the degree that it's imaginal will also liquefy things. It will certainly liquefy the sense of that image, but also the sense of self and the sense of world, the sense of time, all of that. Um, so it's not, uh, again, I really want to stress this, uh, non-linearity necessarily of all the elements that make up the imaginal. Yes, this liquefication, this uh, unfabricating to some degree, this loosening, unbinding, is, a, is an integral part of, a uh, uh, necessary part of what's happening in imaginal practice. But it might not always proceed step by step like that. First you do the uh, unfabricating a little bit, and then, and then you can have an image. It might, might come in any order. Another thing, another sort of, I don't know if it's a caveat, but something that um, it's important to be aware of with all this, because I'm, I'm also aware that some people might hear 
some teachings on emptiness, um, either on their own, uh, in, in the context of an emptiness uh, course or something, or book or whatever it is, or in, in the context of imaginal practice, and, and feel a little daunted and feel a little like, whoa, I'm, I'm so far from those kinds of experiences that you're talking about, and there's so many different practices, and they all seem quite advanced, etc. Um, so I'm, I'm aware of that, and I want to address that to um, share something, um, uh, an imaginal experience that's r- related to um, what I want to say here. Um, basically what I want to say is that any degree or depth of loosening, unbinding, unfabricating, of um, any bringing in, any degree of bringing in emptiness um, is, is, is generally going to be helpful um, with imaginal practice, with sensing the soul, unless one has just got the foot rammed on the accelerator, emptiness, 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 and is really leaning uh, and emphasizing that understanding of emptiness as a, as a way of looking at all perception. And then things will just fade. And as I said before, at, at that time, there's not going to be any image, there's not going to be any perception. You can come out of that and things will be loosened. So you can dip in and come out. Um, but uh, not, not at that time of full throttle emptiness uh, contemplation. But what I really want to say is, whatever, uh, um, whatever little bit of emptiness or liquefying or unfabricating uh, we can bring to bear can be really helpful. So, uh, share something from a few months ago. Um, I was um, struggling with some after effects of treatments and things, and um, uh, quite tired and uh, physically uncomfortable, and um, different bodily systems <laughs> taxed um, by the medication and things. And, um, and I sat. Uh, to meditate, and almost immediately um, a soul-making constellation came together. Uh, And I use that word deliberately here, constellation. So I can't remember the exact order of appearance of the various elements of the constellation, but one was the kind of, a word actually, or an idea of stamina, forbearance, patience with the suffering and difficulty. Um, so that came just as a an idea, really, a, a word. Um, but that uh, it, 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 it was lit up in a certain way. Give it, it had the sense of significance, of depth, of uh, etc. It, it was woven into the um, the imaginal tapestry. There. Uh, another was um, the idea, and then the experiential sense, the meditative sense of all experience. Um, including, and especially the dukkha of the pain I was feeling at the time, the discomfort, the inconvenience, the frustration um, uh, with respect to medical stuff and things that were going on with doctors, etc. at the time. Um, The whole situation of uh, being very ill and and the whole kind of... um, likely movement towards dying. Um, so the idea was that, the idea and then the sense of all experiences, just appearances. It's just an appearance. 
Um, so some of you who are familiar with emptiness practices will, will recognize that as a certain level of emptiness perception. and just regards this or that as my body. It's just an appearance. This thought is just an appearance. Um, even the perception of this desk is just an appearance. Time is just an appearance. So one can, one can decide uh, to employ it as a way of looking. It's just appearance, just appearance just appearances and that can be very beautiful and very liberating um, it's not the deepest level of emptiness perception um, so it's it's a wonderful practice if you if you de- de- take your time to develop the skill in that and you can you can see uh, you will notice how liber- liberating it is but it's not the, the deepest level it's only a certain level of emptiness perception. It's one um, of a of a range of, of a whole range of practices. But in this case, it just came almost by itself, um, and it's something that I've practiced a lot of in the past. It's one one of the practices I've done of that range. Um, but it's not the deepest. It's only a certain level. But it was enough to change the relationship at that moment with the whole health predicament, with dying, and like all emptiness practices do, as I said earlier, it should it should release aversion. It should be a letting go. It should release clinging and aversion, and in so doing, it releases dukkha, and also then allowed a sense of stamina. Uh, uh, and the kind of ability to persevere with with strength, with steadiness, with a sense of uprightness. So there was this idea of stamina that came, and and it sort of uh, alive uh, with with imaginal import um, and portent, and uh, and then there was this um, a certain emptiness perception at a certain level, not the deepest, which I from past practice, quite used to, etc., just kind of came by itself. There was a third element um, to this imaginal constellation, which was a, a kind of Middle Eastern man in, in a black robe, and his features were not visually clear, but his energy was um, quite stern. And he was encouraging me uh, to, to, to stamina. Um, so he was kind of standing and sort of dancing opposite me, uh, quite fierce, and a tremendous amount of energy he had. As a kind of tough love, I suppose, uh, he was he was uh, teaching or communicating me. Um, and he somehow communicated, not necessarily in words, that my illness and possible dying may be for the sake of uh, more than me. Um, And I had certain associations with that with regard to the Sangha and uh, uh, things like that. Um, that piece I checked out. You know, I'm, all, I'm always a little bit cautious when things have, you know, something in the imaginal practice has to do with self and check it out. And it's like, oh, yeah, it had the imaginal middle way. I wasn't reifying that um, as some kind of. Um, you know, self-glorification or something like that. So that put me at ease with that aspect of it. So these three aspects came together. The word stamina, the idea of stamina, the um, uh, seeing 
the idea and, and then the sense of all experiences, just appearances, and then this um, Middle Eastern stern, fierce um, t- teacher, um, and what he was kind of communicating to me as he danced. Um, and I felt better immediately, um, just very, very quickly. Um, the body softened, the energy body opened, the energies um, uh, opened and were kind of enveloped in a warm light, I felt. Um, uh, and I could feel that as potentially healing if I wanted to, um, so I, I sort of lingered there a little bit. So several points here. Um, one is, uh, by way of illustration, uh, one is um, n- notice the complexity of some images, that they actually involve several elements in combination here. So identified three in this case. Second, as I said, and this was the main point that I wanted to, to communicate right now, um, the use of emptiness perceptions and practices to loosen um, to, to loosen things, liquefy things, and to aid uh, in that way the imaginal possibilities um, uh, really important. So this this just appearances uh, this perce- this uh, attitude way of looking of regarding all experiences, especially the difficult ones, as just appearances. Um, really, really an integral part of what opened up here and uh, of supporting that possibility of opening. But, and this is the point, they don't always have to be the deepest emptiness practices or perception one, perceptions one knows. So in this case, I've, I've you know spent a lot of time exploring emptiness and um, there are much deeper emptiness practices than this just, just appearance um, view. Uh, but it didn't have to be the deepest one. So really, uh, either wherever you are in your kind of exploration of emptiness and loosening and liquefying and uh, unbinding, unfabricating things, that's going to be helpful. And if you've gone uh, quite deep with these things, then anywhere along the range of what you've explored up to that point will be helpful. You don't always have to go to the deepest level of emptiness. I mean, that can be great and helpful too, but it's not always necessary. So that was the main point, but let's just um, say a couple of other things. So um, the the facets of the imaginal um, constellation there, those three facets, affect affected and transformed each other. So they were in kind of mixed up, involved in each other, affecting each other. So um, what happened as the thing became more imaginal was that emptiness perception of, um, uh, that emptiness way of looking of um, phenomena, experience, are just appearances, um, that also became more soul-making than it would be in in a purely emptiness practice that wasn't um, imaginal and soul-making, because it was um, affected by, wrapped up in, in dialogue with and informed by the other more imaginal elements that were going on, this idea of stamina and this um, this stern teacher and a fierce teacher in a black robe. So that um, appearances... Uh, Appearances came to mean just appearances. Uh, what the word appearances came to mean also gained uh, range and dimensionality and depth and fullness and rich richness. 
it meant it included certainly my illness, the dukkha, uh, dying early, etc. That was um, appearance. Um, And with all the um, freeing ramifications of that, but included more also the narratives of my life again. Um, And also, even more than that, um, that these appearances, the narrative and the experience and the illness and the dying and all that, they were, they are me. And and they are not me, of course. Um, uh, but they are me and not me. They are my soul. So this was an intuitive, imaginal soul-making understanding. These appearances are my soul. Now, of course, other times I can have a completely different way of looking. Appearances, experiences, my narrative, none of that is me. In this case, because of the flexibility of ways of looking, there's a possibility, and this just kind of happened organically in the imaginal mix of things in the constellation there, there was the opposite view. They are my soul. And that that sense of that narrative and the early death and, and the illness and all these experiences, and, and even the things that I was looking at in the room, the, the, the sofa or whatever was there, the table, they are my soul. Um... And all of that, the narrative, death, illness, etc., um, form an, formed an image. And there was awareness that image is not just for me, but it's also for others. So there was awareness of self being an image for other, of course, which we can be, and, and I think we should be in the, in the most in the fullest and deepest and most beautiful human relationships. We become image for each other. We become imaginal image for each other. Um, so, so the, the the emptiness perception itself, the emptiness way of looking of just appearances, also, as I said, took on um, took on this became Im- uh, dimensionalized in in and in, in becoming imaginal itself. So, there's a way of um, using. I'll come back to this in another talk, but there's a way of using emptiness practices um, at times that kind of uh, de- denigrate uh, appear- experience and, and the phenomena of, of, of uh, our experience, internal, external, etc. Because it's in the service of letting go, it's like, oh, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter, it's empty, it's empty. And there's a kind of uh, a letting go, a holy disinterest I called it sometimes um, it's it's um, it's almost like saying it's it's nothing it's empty and and that's very valid at, at one point but it leads beyond the world so to speak if I just keep regarding things that way it will take me to the unfabricated of course it can get hijacked with aversion and as I said with anti-libidinal tendencies and deflation and all that. But in this case, the notion of appearances that got um, opened up and uh, filled out in both a liberating way and an imaginal way was not a kind of denigration or degradation of appearances. So I was reminded of um, a passage from Henri Corbin where um, he, in his lifetime, was accused of being uh, a docetist, uh, 
so Docetism was regarded uh, at some point by the, the church authorities as a, as a particular kind of heresy. What it means, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, uh, what it means is um, uh, the view or the philosophy that Christ was not truly human, but was an appearance. Um, and uh, some of you will know parallels uh, of that between certain teachings about Buddha nature, that actually the Buddhas that appear in the world are actually appearances. Uh, they're not... Um, uh, there are kind of appearances, if you like, projected forth from from another level of the, the Dharmakaya and the Sambhogakaya, etc. Um, so, Corbett, in his teaching about uh, the Abrahamic traditions and his teaching about with regard to Christ and all that, um, w- was accused of, uh, or his interpretation of, of those teachings and his his of those stories um, in his teaching as they would be more helpfully regarded as appearance he he was accused of heresy and he replied yes uh, I am but it's I am a docetist but it's a docetism that is far from degrading um, reality by making it appearance on the contrary by transforming it into appearance by transforming seeming reality into appearance, it makes this reality, in inverted commas, transparent to the transcendent meaning manifested in it. Do you understand? So we can say just appearance, it's a way of just letting go, ah, it doesn't matter. Um, and then usually there's something that's real, and this is just appearance, and I want that real thing. Um, but he's saying, no, in making it appearance, um, by transforming it into appearance, it makes this reality transparent, the transcendent meaning manifested in it. Um, in other words, when we sense it that way, um, what it means to be an appearance, it means it's illuminated, it's translucent, it's um, transubstantiated into the theophany or angelic manifestation uh, or, or uh, radiation of divinity that... that it's perceived that way. So similarly, what happened here in the weaving together of these different imaginal elements, um, a certain emptiness mode of looking, way of looking, that could be uh, denigrating of appearances, was actually then uh, woven into something that was much more sacred and beautiful and, and uh, soulful. Um, <clears throat> so, let's see. Um, there's a relationship. You can recognize some of uh, what we're talking about in this this relationship between unfabricating and. Uh, sensing the soul and the opening up of the imaginal. Um, you can recognize some of that in other traditions. So, um, certainly in uh, tantric teachings, uh, as I've pointed out many times, they're actually premised on understanding of emptiness. So that um, 
one's usually instructed to um, meditate on emptiness for a certain amount of time and then engage in um, deity visualization, etc. Uh, I quote something from uh, the Jewish mystical tradition. I can find it. Um, this is from Shnur Zalman. Shnur Zalman. In a book called Likutei uh, Amarim, sometimes called Tanya. And um, he said, Love derived from the understanding and knowledge of the greatness of the blessed Ein Sof. Ein Sof um, means literally without limit, but when you hear the, or read the explanations of how that's uh, used in the um, Jewish mystical traditions, the Kabbalistic traditions, it really means um, a kind of um, nothingness. So it's something akin to the unfabricated um, so love derived from the understanding and knowledge, the understanding and experience of the greatness of the blessed Ainsof of the unfabricated, let's call, let's say, is called Reotadalibal, um, which means heart's desire. Um, so in other words, when we uh, love that um, uh, experience and the understanding uh, we get from it, we love the uh, unfabricated, there's that movement, um, that that love is called the heart's desire. And from this heart's desire, he continues, from this heart's desire is produced a garment for the soul in the world of Beriah. There's a lot of Hebrew technical terms here, but that world of Beriah is one of the sort of strata of many worlds. Um, so this world of physical manifestation is just one world. There are other planes of existence. Beria also means uh, the world of Beria is the world of creation. Uh, so this love and desire, this heart's desire for the unfabricated, um, uh, from that heart's desire, from that love, it has produced a garment for the soul in the world of creation, in the, in the world, we, we could say... Um, well, I'll put it into our language in a sec. In the world of Beriah, in the world of creation, which constitutes the higher garden of Eden. So, here's a love um, derived from uh, uh, knowing the unfabricated, a heart's desire, and uh, for the unfabricated, and for all that that um, implies. And from that heart's desire is produced a garment for the soul in the world of creation. And that world of creation constitutes the higher garden of Eden. So in our language we can talk about um, the heart's desire based on knowing knowing Ainsof means the, the eros based on knowing emptiness and the unfabricated. If we just translate terms, the eros based on knowing emptiness and unfabricated, that eros, as being eros, it will if if it's allowed to do what it does, it will um, impregnate uh, and uh, deepen, richen, complexify, expand, etc. The, um, the psyche and the logos and the whole sense of things so that um, the energy body and the imaginal body and the whole world open up uh, and become imaginal and become dimensionalized and become divinized. This garment for the soul 
in the higher Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden. You understand? So this love of emptiness, this knowing of emptiness and the unfabricated, um, that that eros does something um, based based also on the experience of emptiness. Um, it opens up the energy body. That energy body becomes a garment for the soul. The energy body experience a garment for the soul in the Garden of Eden, in a world transformed, dimensionalized, divinized, eternalized, given meaningfulness, beauty, resplendent with all the elements of the imaginal. So uh, that whole um, indispensable place for emptiness, unfabricating, and the love of that to the eros for that to what it can open up. It has parallels um, in ta- Buddhist tantric teachings and also, in, in, as we just quoted, in, in uh, certain Kabbalistic teachings from the Jewish tradition. Um, and we can understand that in, in, in with our words. I hope that makes sense. Uh, so, emptiness is powerful. You know, going back to what people have, going back to what I said earlier, people have different relationships with it, and different sort of degrees of desire and curiosity with regard to it. But, but it's powerful in terms of what it can deliver um, for certainly for our. Dharma practice for our lives and, and definitely for um, imaginal practice. Um, in also just lingering on tantric parallels, you know that some of you will have heard of tumo, the the practice of uh, the inner fire, the inner heat that is um, sort of famous practice in in uh, among Tibetan yogis. Uh, so Lama Yeshe has written about it and. Sang and other people, you can find books about it. And in a way what it involves is a sort of um, visualizing the channels of the energy body and visualizing certain things happening in those channels and in the central channel, the vertical channel of the body, of the energy body. And um, in a way, right, a byproduct of that practice is the generation of, uh, of, of internal heat. The, the, the purpose of the practice is not so much to keep you warm in the snow, um, but, but the purpose is that in, in um, uh, working with the channels of, of energy in this way, um, that a very deep perception of emptiness comes about. So rather than through some kind of analytic meditation or other, other playing with fabrication, one actually works with the energy body and that delivers... Um, uh, a deep understanding of emptiness. Um, again, mutual dependent rising, that things work both ways. So you will notice um, when you uh, when you're contemplating emptiness, when you're engaging in emptiness practice and it's kind of working well, there's there is a um, uh, alignment, harmonization of the energy body just as there is when, when we do imaginal practice and, and an image is, is becoming imaginal. Um, but this can go very deep. So when we, when we um, uh, have a deep uh, moment of realizing emptiness, and it could just be a moment, you will feel something uh, qu- quite dramatic. It's not really the right word. But there's a real sense of 
the energy body and the whole bodily experience being cleared out and sort of purified, um, as well as being aligned and harmonized. So the um, the work with the channels and visualizing can lead to a sense, uh, an experience of emptiness um, in the Tibetan teachings, but also the other way around. Um, emptiness practice, emptiness experience uh, um, will purify the energy body and the channels there, and you can actually feel that. Um, and it will liquefy and uh, unfabricate to some degree all, all perception. Uh, I want to say something else about that. Um, you know, again, um, this the, at a deep uh, at a deep level. That's that's a quite, let's say, sort of almost dramatic, palpable experience. But even a little bit, you'll notice that something happens in the energy body because it's untangling uh, the, the the knots and the contractions that clinging causes. But as I said earlier, with with regard to its place and its um, use uh, in imaginal practice or alongside or uh, supporting or opening imaginal practice, you know, there's all kinds of ranges of the uh, kind of depth and power of different emptiness practices. And they're all, they're all um, going to be useful and, and, and helpful. So don't get hung up or it has to be this really deep thing. Sometimes it can be, you know, really deep. And these things can, with, with practice, they can be um, very quick um, so that usually takes quite a bit of time of developing emptiness practices, but um, you know there's always individual variation. So uh, sometimes what's uh, very powerful, for example, in opening up sensing the soul is um, uh, just a few moments even of uh, contemplating the emptiness of time. Now. For those few moments to be powerful, they will depend on probably quite a lot of um, practice and familiar developing familiarity with um, contemplating the emptiness of time or ways of looking that kind of um, unfabricate time, etc., or realize its emptiness. Um, but if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, or if it's the sort of thing that's available to you, or if um, uh, if this is relevant later on, sometimes it's going to be very powerful. Few moments. Uh, perhaps only of um, some some way of seeing the emptiness of time, and then turning the attention to 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 anything could be the the body or or something else, um, anything that appears in time and changes in time, which is all things that we know um, in the world of conventional experience. Um, so some contemplation of emptiness of time meditatively. And then turning the attention that's kind of imbued with that understanding of the emptiness of time, just turning the attention to something which appears and changes in time, and the sense of a timeless dimension uh, will be uh, will be allowed, will be supported and made manifest there. And again, that being one of the nodes of eternality, timelessness, um, the there can be then the perception of that thing, whatever thing it was, the body or whatever else, um, uh, the body, the world, whatever, 
that, that can be sensed with soul because we've ignited one of the um, one of the elements in the imaginal one of the nodes. Uh, but as I say, things can any any kind of emptiness practice or any level don't get don't please don't get um, you know daunted or self-critical or despairing if you hear about practices that you you know haven't haven't approached yet or that seem a long way off for you. Uh, mentioned, I think, in uh, one of the talks already on the retreat, how um, just a little bit of anatta practice, of regarding something that we would usually identify with or take as me or mine, and of engaging a way of looking that regards it as not me, not mine, very lightly. Um, A a degree of that anatta practice can uh, allow the self to become imaginal. The sense of self becomes an imaginal sense of self. Um, Why? Because anatta practice is one of those unfabricating practices. When we regard things as not me, not mine, it's actually very, very powerful, potentially, if we can. It's really worth developing as a practice, um, if you can, if you're interested. So some, not the whole, again, not the accelerator, the gas pedal rammed down full throttle, because that will just... um, fade everything, and then you'd have to come out of that, and that still might be helpful. But just a degree of anatta, a little sort of light touch, uh, liquefies things. Liquefies, in this case, the sense of self. And um, uh, in a way, anatta practice is also stepping out of the normal self-sense. So the normal, habitual, uh, mostly unconscious um, kind of program uh, for consciousness is is to appropriate this or that as me or mine, body, um, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, intentions, consciousness itself, etc. And so it's by, by engaging the anatta way of looking um, with respect to some, some of that or all of that, you're actually stepping out of the normal self-sense enough. Uh, and there's a... Uh, in, in stepping out of that normal kind of entrenched self-sense, then there's actually room, space for the self to be viewed in other ways. So a degree of anatta practice uh, doesn't have to be, like I said, the whole, the whole hog can be really helpful in liberating the possibility of sensing the self imaginally, of, of, a, of, of perceiving uh, an imaginal self rather than just the locked-in, conventional, reified, uh, solidified sense of self. Um, I want to mention another possibility here, um, that, uh, again, I feel very strongly that emptiness... uh, can and should be in the service of um, love, certainly, and the Brahma Viharas, and uh, not just liberation, not just personal liberation, emptiness in the service of the Brahma Viharas, but also in the service of a sense of sacredness and senses of sacredness. So that um, what you can notice sometimes is that... uh, Opening to more emptiness or deeper emptiness um, at some time can actually in open up and support a sense of prayerfulness 
or it might be that um, we're uh, kind of we feel moved to uh, uh, adopt a prayerful stance with respect to um, something or some situation, um, or just with respect to the cosmos, and not really not really prayer as supplication as asking, but just a prayerfulness. Um, but very easily for us as human beings, that prayerfulness can can feel blocked at times, or limited, or stuck in some way. Um, of course, when we're asking for things, when there's a supplication, um, uh, oftentimes uh, it's because there's something we want um, or, or feel we need, and the self wanting uh, that is rarefied. Um, and, and that rarefication of the self actually limits the, the, the sense of the prayerfulness and the openness of the prayerfulness. It doesn't feel so alive um, or so rich or so deep or so beautiful um, when the self is rarefied. So seemingly paradoxically, when there is, so to speak, less self, when the, when the, uh, the emptiness of the self is seen or we're engaging a way of looking that, that um, experiences the self m- more uh, more emptily, um, that actually uh, opens up and fires and supports uh, a, a deeper, wider, more beautiful and richer, more soulful um, quality of prayerful supplication. One still might be in the level of prayer of asking, of, su- of, 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 of supplication. If that's the right word, I hope it is. Um, so, uh, but but the whole thing has become looser, less solidified, less contracted. There's still a self that's praying in the asking sense. That's one level of prayer, but that self is is kind of see-through. It's it's um, it's looser, just because it's seen as more empty. Um, so the emptiness. Uh, just as emptiness opens up and should open up um, the Brahma Viharas uh, and support the Brahma Viharas I've talked about that uh, in the past Um, so also uh, the emptiness can open up the prayerfulness and enrich and deepen it and make it more uh, more beautiful And, and it might be unless you're used to this that that seems paradoxical the self is asking, if I see the emptiness of self, why would I ask for anything? Because self is empty, it doesn't need anything, there's nothing to need. But actually it's not, uh, yes it can go to that level, but we're talking about sort of um, the more subtle play of the pedals here. Some intermediate territory of emptiness that opens up um, opens up the, the richness and the the, the, the breadth and depth and beauty of, of soul-making perceptions of sensing the soul. I'll just say one thing to finish um, tonight. Um, we talk about the imaginal middle way, the theatre-like quality, neither real nor not real, being one of the elements of the um, of the imaginal of sensing the soul. But um, that doesn't really equate. Uh, completely. So the imaginal middle way is not the middle way of emptiness that Nagarjuna and others talked about. Not exactly. Um, So I want to come back to this later, but um, 
you know, all things are empty, at least in my understanding of emptiness, and um, I think Nagarjuna and other people, all things are empty. Um, so that means something that's uh, an imaginal perception is empty, but also a conventional perception is empty. Um, and a deluded perception is empty. All, all of that is empty. All of those perceptions are empty. All things are empty. But still, although all things are empty, um, they're not... Um, partly things are empty in different ways. Um, at the deepest level, they're all empty in the same way. For instance, everything is empty. All things are empty um, because time is empty and anything to exist must exist in time. So everything's empty at that level. At other levels, there may be more... Um, some things are empty in certain ways that others aren't. The stock market is empty because it's just a social convention um, that people get very het up about, but it's just a social convention. Um, anyway, at a deep level, all things are empty, but still, you know, there's, and I've said this before, there's an ontological difference um, in, in status between an imaginal object and uh, a, 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 a conventionally perceived physical object. To say that oh, they're all the same because they're all just empty. There, There is a difference in ontological status there. So when we talk about the imaginal middle way, there's, there, we're not talking about exactly the same thing uh, as emptiness. I want to come back to that in another talk, hopefully. We'll see. Um, but what I do want to say uh, right now to finish is, is about the, the sort of degree of latitude or flexibility or, or range um, with how much we reify at any time if we talk about imaginal practice. So um, it might be, um, you know, we we really emphasize this neither real nor not real theater-like quality, imaginal middle way, but maybe, maybe there's a rightness um, to relating to certain images um, where where we are reifying to certain images. Um, and in that sense, those images are empty, but just empty in the way that a person is empty, or any, any uh, conventionally uh, agreed-upon physical uh, entity is empty. Um, so there's more reification, if you like, going on than uh, what we mean with the imaginal middle way. Or within that imaginal middle way, there's a range, and we can kind of reify a bit more or a bit less at different times, perhaps. And maybe there's a rightness in all that. I've said um, before that I think it will be, in the long run, much more fertile to be quite... Um, diligent and curious about that sense of the imaginal middle way. It's a really a s certain flavor, this theater-like quality, and give that uh, quite a lot of importance um, to, to begin with. And to begin with might be for years in imaginal practice. Um, and then based on that uh, experience and feel for that, it's really a certain feel, it's like it feels very different it, uh, than other experiences. And based on the familiarity and the experience with that, then we might start exploring more uh, of uh, 
possibilities of, of more reification, etc., with certain experiences, certain images, certain senses. And I, I feel that that will be much more fruitful. It will also preserve, as I said, the, the territory and the domain of imaginal practice from just getting mixed up with other stuff and, 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 and its particular fruits being lost its unique fruits being lost. So I guess my my request and encouragement is 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 to kind of lean on that for a while. I know it, it kind of challenges people or even irks some people, etc. But I do feel it's important. And having said that, there might be at times uh, and with certain experiences, certain images um, the, the possibility of reifying a bit more and maybe even the necessity or the appropriateness, let's say, of reifying a bit more. Some of that might be just to do with a, a person's own, let's say, uh, growth of their soul or psychology. Um, so for someone it might be good for them to, uh, you know, uh, pray to a personal God um, asking for help for themselves. Um, uh, humbly and reifying self, situation and God um, it might be that a person just jumps too easily to this non-reification and there's not with it enough of a certain kind of traction in, in the being, in the psychology, in the soul, in the heart so it might be for personal reasons um, but it's a tricky one, you know, in teaching. It's also emptiness middle way. It's really tricky, you know, and it's something that really, in 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 the journey of understanding and practicing with emptiness, it's something that I think uh, refines itself and gets more and more subtle and more and more precise what it really means to say things neither exist or 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 not exist. Things neither do exist nor don't exist. This this emptiness middle way. It's really really a part of the journey. Um, and one sort of wobbles back and forth um, either side of that middle way as it gets as the understanding kind of hones in uh, on on what it really means intellectually but also really intuitively and experientially um, but similarly um, with with the imaginal middle way it's it's uh, it's a tricky teaching it seems for people um, on the other hand, like I said, it might be it to me it's it just has a certain flavor, and I can tell when I'm working with someone um you know whether they're in that or not, and uh the, 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 they recognize it if I point it out often, but um not everyone but um but if there's enough sensitivity and familiarity um it's palpable you're in a different realm there. Um, when when there is not the reification, so I think it's 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 sometimes really palpably obvious, and it seems to be um, something that many people struggle with for different reasons. But um, you know, I was talking with Catherine as well. And we realise that we don't want to kind of get um, uh, attached to a position of non-reifying. Um, there may be a kind of spectrum of reification in imaginal practice which we are free to move along at any time, more or less, and maybe for different reasons at any time. 
um, that it's more right to rarefy, more appropriate, more helpful for whatever reason we have in mind. Um, so it might be, as I said, uh, something to do with a, a, a person's, uh, you know, personal growth, um, something to do with the, the fullness of their being, or it might have to do more with the experience itself and the image itself. Um, that there are whole categories of being that are not uh, have categories of experience that. Um, share a lot of aspects with imaginal experience, but they're not imaginal. We're talking about other things. We're talking about opening to different realms um, as, uh, you know, perceptions that are as real as anything else, as real as seeing my friend walking down the street or having a cup of tea or whatever. It, it, it may well be my my inclination is is say there are uh, all, all all many kinds of realms of uh, experience and being, and in those cases to uh, adopt a non reifying stance in the in the sense of the imaginal way may not be attuned or appropriate. So it's complex. It's really complex and. Um, but it feels important to mention, you know, um, there are, certainly I've heard accounts of, um, I mean, there's a whole realm of psychic phenomena, ESP, and all, all kinds of things, and shamanism, and energy perceptions, and aura perceptions, and all that, and, and that's all important and great, I think. Um, again, wanted to differentiate it from the imaginal. But I've also heard... Um, accounts of people near death um, I don't mean actually near death experience I mean who are in the process of dying um, reporting um, as as they're you know in the, in the, on their deathbed or, or whatever um, uh, per- perceiving angels perceiving other planes of beings etc and knowing things about friends or relatives on the other side of the world without any communication all kinds of stuff um, and it's interesting, since the diagnosis of the metas- metastases um, and this sort of um, high likelihood of dying soon, um, there are times when I also feel uh, as if other planes of existence uh, are sort of opened up uh, to my perception. And I shared this very briefly the other in another talk the other night. Um, but sometimes it's it's almost like the the perception of the angel uh, or the angelic um, dimension of a human being is almost more heavily weighed than the, the perception of their human aspect, if we can even separate those two. Um, and and it does have a different quality than. Uh, what we're calling the imaginal or the imaginal middle way. There is really a sense uh, or a sense of really opening to something that has the ontological status, the um, degree of being, of reality, um, equivalent to uh, any human perception or any physical perception. Um... So I just want to mention that. Um, it's obviously it's a huge subject. I don't have it at all figured out. I don't know anyone that does. 
um, etc. Um, but I, this business of uh, the importance of the imaginal middle way, it's not quite the same as emptiness. It's quite a wide middle way, and we might have a range within it, more or less rarefied. And again, it's quite individual, you know, when to lean on that as a teacher, in, uh, talking to a student, you know, less rarefication, more theatre, um, can you notice that element? And when actually to lean on the more rarefication, even if it's imaginal, um, to sense, you know, in a way, this sense of your soul may be more real, this sense of your, this imaginal sense of yourself, this imaginal sense of, um, uh, you, you know, what you're given by the by the angels or the angel that had maybe more real, more important, more significant, more central, um, more kind of more of a solid pillar and guide in your life than anything which uh, uh, conventionally, socially agreed upon um, perception would sanction. So there's individ- individual differences at different times um, in certainly in teaching, but also we get a feel for this for ourselves and uh, moving moving within that range of the imaginal middle way and there might be a whole a whole gamut of uh, experiences that fall outside of the imaginal and therefore don't really the whole middle way thing the imaginal middle way doesn't pertain to them so much as just uh, an emptiness middle way pertains to them as it does to any object um, physical or otherwise. So I just want to mention that um, as as the teachings evolve uh, and to to point that out. Okay, let's stop for tonight. Uh, we'll hopefully say more about emptiness um, in a later talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.